Well, we're uh, talking on the subject of faith. We started this series two, uh, two weeks ago. We looked at outline uh, Hebrews and looked at the great Hall of Fame of Faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. And you know, uh, when you're reading through Hebrews chapter 11, I just want to point out this, that uh, God is not looking to use a perfect person in the sense of without fault or without blame. Now, it should be a goal of every believer uh, to have per a perfection thought. But the Greek word for perfection, teleos, just simply means that you're maturing. It doesn't mean that you never miss it, you never blow it, uh, but you are maturing in the things of faith. And so it's interesting, some of the people outlined in Hebrews 11 were people that uh, missed it, had some shortcomings, some weaknesses, but God was still, still able to work through them and they were able actually to get in uh, named in Hebrews chapter 11 for some of the works of faith they did while they were in the earth. Uh, so just like you, we all have some shortcomings and God desires us and really aims for us to make sure that we continue to grow and to know him better. And there should be measurable progress in your walk with God. Uh, do you know him better today than you did last year? Uh, have you grown more in the last, you know, over the last five years, last five months? So there should be progress in your walk with him. And that's what God's looking for, a heart that is teachable and a heart that will respond to what he wants us to do. And so we, tonight we're going to look at a woman of faith. Amen? A woman of faith. So you probably got a 50% chance to guess right now who that would be because two books in the Bible uh, were written specifically about women. Uh, women, the, the book of Esther and the book of Ruth. And it just seemed right to talk about Ruth tonight. Amen. So Ruth um, was a Moabite woman. And um, the, the story, the book is right after Judges and right before 1 Samuel. And it actually historically, it takes place during the time of Judges. Last week, we covered the lives of Caleb and David, or Caleb and Joshua. And we saw that God's desire was to take his people out of Egypt through the wilderness and to place them in the Canaan land. And remember, Canaan land is where God fulfills your capacity, your potential, those things that he's put on the inside of you, the destiny, the assignment. It's a life of fullness. It's a life of abundance. There's a lot of believers uh, that live in the wilderness and die in the wilderness. And that's not God's desire. His desire is to bring you out, to bring you in. He wants to bring you out of the world, out of control of the devil, so he can bring you into the fullness of the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said he, this prayer to pray this way, that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's will is for you to have a heaven experience in the earth, a fullness of reaching the potential, the things that he's put on the inside of you. So it's interesting, in the book of Joshua, uh, we see them actually getting to Canaan land. We talked about that some last week. And now that they're in Canaan land, we have the book of Judges that follows that. And uh, during this time, they, they had no king. Uh, they had judges that went about and, um, you know, basically uh, evaluated Israel. And it, a very fascinating period of time, on a very sad period of time, too, because a lot of them... Uh, we're getting off track. So it was really Judges characterizes a period of extreme spiritual and moral decay in Israel, which means even though you can get into Canaan land, there's more to um, maintaining than there is to obtaining. 
There's more to maintaining than obtaining. You can get that 350Z. Nissan 350Z, right? Two-seater sports car. But do you realize, because I used to sell these many, 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 many years ago, uh, that you can't rotate the tires on there because the rear tires are bigger than the front tires. So once you obtain it, you've got to maintain it. And if anybody knows anything about cars, you get more life out of your tires because, why? Wow, you can rotate the tires. You get in a BMW, that's a whole other uh, different than going to Pennzoil, right, Keith? For a 10-minute oil change, that's like uh, not $19.99, that's like $250, right? Somewhere in that price range. So there's more to uh, maintaining than there is to obtaining. So we see the children of Israel come into Canaan land, but they weren't maintaining what they've obtained. But right in the, in, in, at the tail end of Judges, before Samuel comes on the scene, we see this beautiful love story of Ruth that contrasts the... Uh, the pervasive and depravity period of time that Israel's in, it gives a glimmer of hope in an otherwise bleak era. Just like Pastor Marcus was encouraging us, uh, when we have those disappointments or those, what we think are delays, what we think are delays, when most, in reality, most of it's just a time to build character and trust in God and let him work it out. Um, as I was going through the Bible this year, I like this one verse. It said, the battle is the Lord's. So he'll give you the plan, he'll give you the strategy, but ultimately your victory comes through him and we need him. So Ruth gives a glimmer of hope right at the tail end of Judges and the story really reflects around a, a small town and with rural, uh, rural life in Bethlehem. And I just want, it's only four chapters, this book. And uh, like I said, she was a Moabite and I'm going to go ahead and we're not going to, I'll give you four takeaways from tonight if you're taking notes, and I'll try to make sure that I identify one, two, three, and four, because I know when I'm taking notes, that messes me up and frustrates me if I don't get the points and the subpoints in the right place. Hallelujah. Uh, but opening up in chapter one. The main takeaway I'll give you right now, number one in, in chapter one, really verses uh, one through 18, just to give you a quick overview and, and summarization of this book. So Ruth chapter one, verses one through 18, the main takeaway that I get out of this first part is loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. And loyalty is really a commitment to an individual or a cause based upon principle and character. Loyalty is really a commitment or a dedication or a determination to an individual or to a cause, a vision based upon the principle and the character of the person. Uh, the Webster's Dictionary defines loyalty as fidelity to a prince or sovereign. Loyalty, defined by the Webster's Dictionary, 1828 Webster's Dictionary, says that loyalty is fidelity, which means faithfulness or a firm adherence to a prince or to a sovereign. And so we, we see in the book of Ruth, and just to give you a little more backdrop on Ruth, she's a Moabitess or a Mo, Moab um, in her nationality. Now, if, if you went all the way back to Genesis, just to let you know where Moab was birthed, it was from an incestu incestuous uh, relationship with Lot and one of his daughters. So that didn't start off real well. 
But that's where Ruth is from. And I'm going to read verse 1. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in a country of Moab. So he left Bethlehem and he went to Moab. And like I said, the tribe of Moab was started from a bad beginnings. He went with his wife and his two sons. And then it says that the name of this man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. This is verse 2. And the name of the two sons, Malon and Chelon, Ephrites of Bethlehem, Judea. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Now, my question is this. There was a famine in Bethlehem. Now, you need to know that Bethlehem literally meant a house of bread. A house of bread. So what it was destined for, it wasn't producing. And my question is, why was there a famine in the land? Why was there a famine in the land? Why was there a famine in the land? And famine means there was scarcity. There wasn't enough. Uh, The supply wasn't as much as the demand. And famines can happen in our lives, right, where we think like we're going through dry periods or maybe we don't have enough. And we need to ask the question to God, just like King David did, examine me, O Lord, and see if there's anything in me that's displeasing to you. He said that over in Psalms 26. Evaluation always starts with yourself, not your neighbor, not your best friend, not your, not your spouse, not, not the pastor. It starts with you. And, and the New Testament says that we are priests and kings. A priest in the Old Testament was responsible for maintaining righteousness. In the New Testament... You're responsible for maintaining righteousness in your life. So why was there famine in land? I just want to give you this thought, and this isn't all-inclusive for why things people could struggle. There's a tax of the enemy that can take place. It's a, that's a reality. The devil, we know, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. At the same time, too, I want to go ahead and plant this in, in Proverbs 26.2. The Bible says this. I'm going to read this from two different translations. The NIV says it this way like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse does not come to rest. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says that verse like this, like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse will not land on its intended victim. So if the curse is undeserved, it can't stick on a believer that's committed and in the will of God. If a curse tries to come upon you, a believer that's committed and submitted to the will of God, that curse can't stick. It's sort of like I'm rubber, your glue bounces off of me and sticks to you, devil. It can't stick. It can't stick. It can't stick. It can't stick. Don't be scared if somebody curses you. Over in 2 Samuel chapter 16, and if you're taking notes, verses 5 through 13, I'm not going to read all, of, all this scripture, but just summarize it. David was on the run from his son, Absalom. He's with his army because Absalom's trying to, uh, trying to take over the throne. And he's headed out of town, and there's this guy that comes out and starts cursing him. It was a descendant of Saul. And he said, you're a murderer, blood's on your hand, and you're cursed. 
And the army of David said they were ready to slay this guy, to kill him. And David said, leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of this curse today. David wasn't afraid of a curse because he knew that it wouldn't land uh, on an unintended victim. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse number 15, it says, it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So the curse without a cause cannot come to your life. Deuteronomy 28 says that. Over in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse number, or, uh, chapter 21, sorry, verse number 1, 2 Samuel 21, chapter 21, verse number 1, it says, Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, just like Ruth was experiencing, I'm sorry, uh, Elimelech and his family was experiencing famine in the book of Ruth. So David... In his time, there was a famine. And what did he do? He went in evaluation and he asked God, he inquired and required of the Lord, what is going on? And you know what? God will answer you, church. God will tell you, this is why your prayer closet is so important. There's a thing you can get called discernment in your time with God. First John says, the greater one lives on the inside of us. Romans 8, 14 says, as many as are led by the spirit, these are the sons and daughters of God. We need discernment if we're experiencing lack or shortness of something. And David said, why is this famine going on? And God answered him. He said, it's because of Saul. For his bloody house, he slew the Gibbonites. So in order to break this curse of famine, guess what? He had to go to the Gibbonites and say, what do you require for the bloodiness that Saul brought to your tribe? And the Gibbonites said, this will this suffice and satisfy what will take place? And after they did that, the famine ceased. So even in the midst of a, a bad situation, why was there famine in, in Bethlehem, the house of bread that, that caused Elimelech and his family to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab, uh, this place that really, it wasn't, it wasn't a fertile place. And obviously their culture was a counter to what God wanted to be as a nation. I mean, just look at some of the backdrop of the Moabites. They are the ones, we remember the story about Balaam and, and Balak uh, um, when the, he wanted to curse the Israelites. These are the same women in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. I'll just go ahead and read the scripture to you, Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. This was the culture of the Moabites. It said, now Israel remained in the Achaia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry, what do you do with a harlot? You commit harlotry. With the women of Moab, they invited the people of Israel to sacrifice to their gods and the people bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to these false gods and the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. And so Elimelech is leaving Bethlehem because of famine to go to a place like this. The Moabites also worship a god called Chemosh, and Chemosh, 1 Kings 11.7, calls Chemosh the abomination of Moab. So Elimelech's going from where covenants established to a foreign land to where they worshiped 
this God, Chemosh. Chemosh, one of the things the Moabites did was they worshiped him by slaying their own children, killing their kids. They were also into erotic images and lewd behavior. This was the culture that Elimelech was bringing his family into. So why would he bring his family into that? And it was at a cost, church. It was at a cost. When you leave what you know is right and you wander down the wrong path, the wages of sin is death. But even the midst of a bad choice, even like some of the uh, Hall of Fame of Faith people that are named in there, there's still a good side to God. And even in the midst of bad decisions, not that God condones it, but in a place of repentance, because repentance precedes faith. Repentance precedes faith. When you come to a place where you say, God, I've blown it, I've messed up, repentance will lead to a thing called reconciliation. Even in a place where you've missed it, though, you can always go to God, repent, and get back on the right path to get back where you need to be at. God's arm is not short. He's still reaching out, church. No matter where you're at tonight, no matter if you're in a backslidden condition, God's calling you tonight. He's beckoning you, saying, I love you. Stop the direction you're on. Turn around and start to follow me. Some of you are saying that you're, you're living a mediocre existence in the sense that you're not really any, any sins of commission, but there could be sins of omission. Omission is just knowing what to do but not doing it. Commission means I could be into drugs, I could be in alcohol, I can be into pornography. Omission's basically, I know what to do, but I'm not doing it. It could be as simple as God told you to forgive somebody. It could be as simple as God told you to give to somebody. It could be as simple as God told you to call somebody. It could be as simple as God told you to pray for somebody. So they're in this foreign land. And listen to what, listen to what this costs, because bad decisions will cost you time, resource, and, and eventually it can cost lives. And this is why it's so important to listen to the Holy Ghost and make right choices. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, verse 3, died, and she was left with her two sons. She took them, to, uh, wives of the women of Moab, so this covenant, we know that, that in the New Testament it says that bad company corrupts good character. It says don't be unequally yoked together. And Naomi knew better, but even in the midst of the situation, she ended up cutting covenant with her sons, with uh, people that were out of covenant with God. But God's hand is still not short. And so they took the two wives of Moab. One was named uh, Orpha and the other was, was Ruth. And they dwelled there about 10 years, 10 years. But listen, her two kids who were now grown died, both of them, and she was left with the two, their, their, her two sons' wives. And th this is the cry tonight, though. This is the place of repentance, a place where God wants to get you back on track. Verse 6, she arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab. For she heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people and given them bread. She had heard in Moab how God had visited his people by actually 
pouring out what Bethlehem is supposed to be, the house of bread. She heard that God was moving back in Bethlehem. So she said, I got to get back there. There's something on the inside of me. She could have had a she could have said, I'm going to stay where at and die where we're at. Some people get into a pity party. They get into des- that, uh, despair, turns into depression, and depression turns into destruction. But if you want to get off of that path, then there's a place called repentance where you break that cycle. She could have stayed in her pity party. She could have stayed in the mediocrity of life. She could have died in Moab, but she heard that God had visited his people. She heard the good news that was taking place. And she worked up the courage and the strength to say, I'm going back. I'm getting back. Our prayer for people that may have been out of church, I saw one today, is Lord, bring them back. Bring them back. Let them remind them of the goodness of God. Romans chapter two, verse number four says this, oh, despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. It's the goodness of God, not the wrath of God, but the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Psalms 34, eight says this Psalms chapter 34, verse number eight. It says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 26 says says this, it is because of the Lord's loving kindness that we are not consumed. Even in Elimelech's bad choice and losing, uh, Naomi lost him and the two sons. Even in the midst of that, she still maintained her life. And she was not consumed because his tender compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great and beyond measures your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion and my inheritance, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him and I wait expectantly for him. For the Lord is good to those. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. The Lord is good to those who wait confidently for him, to those who seek him on the authority of his word. It is good that one waits quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Really, this story reminds me of the parable of the prodigal when the prodigal left the father's house over in Luke chapter 15. And he went to a foreign land and he finally in a place where he ran into a famine and he was eaten with the pig slop. He finally came to himself. And I believe that Naomi came to herself when she heard the report, there's bread. In the parable of the prodigal, the son said, isn't there bread? Isn't there substance in my father's house? I'm going to, I'm going to leave this place and I'm going to get back. And Naomi had that same conviction. I'm going to leave this slop and get back to where I'm destined to be. Don't get away from church. Continue to come. In my journey with God since 1997, I've been in church. It's done wonders for my spiritual growth. First, God, I thank him for his faithfulness to always plant me in a spirit-filled, a word-based church. When I was in Columbus, Ohio, God connected me with Raymond Christian Center. When God called me out of Columbus to go get further training, I got connected with Raymond Bible Church in Broken Air, Oklahoma. When God called me from that assignment, to come with Pastor Omarcy to help with this vision that God had birthed in St. Augustine. I've been in this location since 2004. It's made the world a difference in my spiritual growth. I don't know. I, you know, I took a sabbatical. Pastor gave us a sabbatical in December, and it was weird being in town and not coming to church. 
It just didn't feel right. It's sort of like taking a bath with your socks on. It just don't feel right. But it's the banana that gets away from the bunch that gets peeled. So you want to stay connected. You want to stay connected. But in this, this, this overview of this first point that I want to give you, loyalty, really the key verse is found in 16 through 18 of chapter 1. This thought of loyalty, of fidelity to, to a prince or to a sovereign, of faithfulness, this idea of, of, of committed to a principle or to the character of a person. It says this in verses 16 through 18, and Ruth said, entreat me not, entreat me not to leave you. Because Naomi said, I, you, you're not going to go with me. I'm going to leave you in the land where you were born. But Ruth saw something in Naomi that she didn't see in Moab. Ruth saw something. What do people see in you that would draw them into this building? What do you present Monday through Friday at work? What do you present at the gas station? What do you present at the bank? What do you present in the marketplace, that people, they see something in you. And I got to get to where you're going. I mean, the modern day parallel, this is a house of bread. This is a sanctuary where we come to listen to the word of God. This is a sanctuary where we come to pray. This is a sanctuary where we come to praise. This is a sanctuary where we come to worship God. So what do people see in you? And Ruth saw something in Naomi and this is Ruth's response when Naomi said, stay in the familiar, stay with your friends. She said, entreat me not to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. I will lodge where you lodge. Your people shall be my people. And my, your God will be my God. Forget Chemosh, the sacrificing of sons, the erotic stuff, the lewd behavior. I want what you have. There's no fun in that. There's death in that. She says, so where you die, I will die. And where you're buried, I will be buried. And the Lord do to me and more also if only, uh, only death will part you and me. And when Naomi saw that she was steadfastly minded, and that's what faith is. There, faith is a conviction that grows stronger under persecution. Faith is, is a persuasion that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to do the word of God. I believe the word of God, and I'm not going to come off of it. So she was steadfast, steadfastly minded to go with Naomi. She was determined and she was persistent that she was not going to leave Naomi as she journeyed back to, Beth, uh, to uh, Bethlehem. And then Naomi left off speaking because she saw the, the resolve, the resolve the resolve of Ruth. So the important idea of, of loyal love is evident in this book of Ruth. The Hebrew word translated as kindly in 1.8 means loyal love or covenantal love. It was a genuine love that keeps promises. When the word is used of God, it refers to God's loving faithfulness to his promises. Even though Ruth was a foreigner and was not familiar with God's law, she displayed this type of love and this loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She left her homeland in order to be with Naomi 
in a time of need. Ruth's allegiance to her Jewish mother-in-law was unshakable. She willy, willingly abandoned her pagan heritage and worshiped the true and living God. Naomi and Ruth's destinies were bound together by their friendship and their common faith. And this is the type of determination we need to take away from this first point of loyalty. Because loyalty has a determination about it. And before I move on to the second point, I want to give you this thought about the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. Paul knew he was going to encounter some persecution. Paul knew he was going to encounter some pain. Paul knew he was going to encounter some difficult times because of the prophecy that came. But listen to the resolve, the determination, the loyalty to God that Paul says in these verses. He said, see, now I go bound in the spirit. I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that chains and tribulations await me. This isn't getting put up in a five-star hotel. This isn't going to the beach on an 85 degree day and getting a suntan, Paul knew that tribulations and persecutions was happening, but he said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy, that I may finish my race with joy. Are you gonna finish your race with joy? And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul was determined, just like Ruth was determined to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. We pick up in the, with a second takeaway, which Ruth was a worker. So once she was loyal, secondly, she was a worker. She was able to work. So we see in verse number 19, because this is really where the second summary uh, outline picks up. Verse number 19, now when the two of them left, they they went all the way till they came to Bethlehem. I like that because they went all the way. Some people stop in the middle of the journey. But I like the determination. This is where we need to get to, and we're not stopping until we get there. And listen, the city was excited because they saw Naomi come back. And the women of the city said, this is Naomi. Ten years she's been gone. And, and the city is stirred specifically the women with excitement. Listen, Naomi literally means her, her word, her name means pleasant. And obviously we can see that she was a pleasant person before she left because the women wanted to see her. And if you're not a pleasant person to be around, people don't want to see you. If you're unpleasant, that's why people avoid you. If you're unpleasant, that's why when somebody has a shopping cart at Walmart and they start to go down the aisle, they see you, they skip what they really need in that aisle and go to the next aisle because you're not pleasant to be around. Nobody's ever done that, though, in this church. But listen to what she says in verse number 20. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. 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 Why was she bitter? She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. And what have you been through that may, may, may have made you or has made you bitter? What do you need to let go of in order to restore what God really calls you? Because she was pleasant, but now she calls herself bitter. Are you calling yourself something that God is not even calling you? 
Are you calling yourself something that God's not even calling you? Listen, she wasn't aware of the circumstances, but it, John 10, 10 says that, that it's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There was a famine. They went to the wrong place at the wrong time. But even in that, the goodness of God still manifested because he is good. He can still even reach you in a place as long as you've got a place of repentance to get you up out of the muck and the mire and start to get you back in reconciliation identity of what he's called you and who he's called you to be. But at this point, she called herself bitter. And it wasn't, she said, it was God has dealt with me. But really, it's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We get this in the book of Job, behind the scenes, behind the veil in the unseen realm. We see it's the devil, as Pastor Marcus said, that comes to accuse the brethren. It's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 15, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 15, listen, church, it says, pursue peace with all people in holiness. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, she called herself bitter, lest any root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. If you're going to have strong faith, you need to have a strong love walk. She was a worker, Ruth. Galatians 5, 6 says that faith works. Faith isn't unemployed. Faith, listen, there's an action with faith. There's something that you do with faith. Faith is not inactive. Faith is active. Faith works by love. And a lot of you could become bitter just like she became bitter and started calling herself something that God didn't even call her because of experiences, disappointments, maybe death. And listen, death just doesn't mean that you lost somebody. Death takes place in many different forms in life. There could be financial death where you filed bankruptcy. You become bitter. You may even start blaming God. But it's a devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Listen, Really, death, when it comes to health, is just a sickness that hits your body and tries to take you out. And you become bitter. And why did this happen to me? And you have to resolve that if you're going to go on with God. You have to resolve that if you're going to go on with God. You don't want a root of bitterness to spring up. You want to deal with things daily. How do you get a root of bitterness? It's, it's unchecked unforgiveness. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months, months turn into years. A decade goes by and she's calling herself bitter because she's mad at her circumstances. She's mad at God, but she, she doesn't realize that he's not the problem. In order to cure the antidote to bitterness is forgiveness. And forgiveness happens on three levels. You need to forgive others. Some of you may need to forgive God. You blame God. And even though God's not at fault, you need to resolve that. And some of you need to forgive yourself. In Romans 8, 1, it says there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. So you need to be able to forgive others, forgive God, and forgive yourself because you don't want bitterness to defile you. Now, they arrived back in Bethlehem during the barley harvest, and we see Ruth, she goes out to seek work to glean in a field. She goes out to seek work. Listen, some people are like, what is God's will for my life? 
and they're sitting on their backside, not doing anything. Listen, it's very hard to steer a parked car. But oh, when you get motion to it and the power steering kicks in, it's easier to steer. Put your hand to something. I know Pastor O'Marcy's uh, testimony. You've heard it before if you've been with Anchor Faith Church for some time. When they went to Bible school, they found out where the greatest need of area was at, R at Rama Bible Church. And obviously, guess what? As with probably any church, it's the kids' ministry. So they, they got into motion. They may have sensed to call at some point to senior pastor, but you just can't go from point A to point B in the kingdom of God without going through the process. Do you know how many lessons and experiences they had by going through the process? Some people just want to get behind the pulpit and minister. But ministry in its simplest, firm, it means, in its simplest uh, definition means just to serve. Just to serve. Ministry is service. So when I'm ministering, I'm serving you the word tonight. But ministry also happens on Friday when I do the epistle of John. Not your epistle. First John, second John, and third John. Clean the toilets. Yes, it's a sign to the pastoral staff on Fridays to clean the upstairs toilets. It's great. That's ministry. It's serving. But they put their hand to be, um, uh, what was it? Uh, not the love boat. Why am I thinking the love boat? The people that were on the island. Help me out. Gilligan's Island. Not the love boat. Everybody get their mind back. <laughs> but they played that part for that ministry. They put their hand to something. And so just that same way Ruth went to put her hand to something. I remember meeting with somebody one time that was out of work. They were unemployed and they were, they were in a desperate position for finances, but they're waiting for this perfect job. My, my cry to them was go do something. How can God give you any blessing if you're not putting your hand to something. You could pray to your blue in the face, but obedience is better than sacrifice. Money doesn't come down from heaven. If God did, he'd be a counterfeiter. The money's in the earth. You got to go out and get it. A lot of time in the Old Testament, how did the provision come in? They went out and they, they took the spoil from the enemy and brought it into the kingdom. What's the New Testament parallel? You go out into your jobs and you work those jobs. You put your hand to something. You put your hand to something. Put your hand to something. Key verse in Ruth 2.12 in this, this second outline summary. The word said, Boaz said to Ruth, because he saw Ruth in the field, and don't you know it, God, when God is leading your steps, you just happen to get in the right place at the right time. But she had to go. If not, her and Naomi would have starved to death. So she went out to work the field, and she happened to get in the right. I just happened to go to Bible school and meet a wonderful wife. I'm saying that sarcastic, because God will order your steps when you put your hand to something. Listen, I prayed back in 1997 when I heard Apostle Scales said, when you pray, you got to pray specifically. If you're praying for transportation, I'll never forget, he said, and you're praying for a Chevrolet, you could shove one foot and lay the other one. 
He said, though, if you're just praying for transportation, God could send you a bicycle. New pair of shoes. <laughs> the Uber app. <laughs> but I heard that and I said, I'm going to pray for a wife. I got me a list. I still got the, I still got the notebook somewhere in my attic. And I, I list out 10 things I want in a wife. I'm not going to share any of those with you. <laughs> but I prayed in 1997, this is what I want. This is what I'm looking for. I heard pray specifically. So I'm praying, you know. I'm in Columbus, Ohio still at that time. But I, God called me, you know, in my mind, you're thinking you're going to pray and, you know, it's like, rubbing the, the, the genie bot on poof, you know, your wife appears the next day. But really, this is a process of three years before I met Angie, but I started going in a direction that God told me to do. I stayed on the course, and I just happened to meet her at Bible school. And you know, you know the crazy thing about that is her father-in-law, she was going to go to Casey Treat, which is a minister in Washington, to his Bible school, and, and her father-in-law, Max, who just passed away a couple years back, he, stepfather, sorry. What did I say? Father-in-law? Thank you. Thank you. He said, you're not going there. You need to go somewhere closer. And that, praise God. I mean, that blows my mind. I would have never crossed her path. I just happened to, to meet Pastor Earl Marcy and on our paths across for such a time as this. So what I'm saying, put your hand to something. Don't sit back. Prayer's important, but after you get off your knees, go do something. Listen to what Boaz said, because he saw that she was a worker. And this is the second point. She was a worker. He said, the Lord recompense your work. The Lord is going to recompense your work. When you put your hand to something, church, the Lord will recompense your work. That, and that word recompense means you're going to be in a covenant of peace a covenant peace. You'll be safe in mind, body, and estate. Listen, this is, this is a lady at the time that didn't have any security, really no peace. They were, they were destitute. They were broke coming back into Bethlehem. But he said, you'll be in a covenant of peace. And the Lord's going to give you a full reward. The Lord will give you a full, that means a complete and a whole reward. He'll give you wages for what you're doing. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work, in the work. Work is not a dirty word. Work is still in this new dispensation. God gave Adam work before the fall. And he's still assigning humanity, his children today, work in the earth. In Mark chapter 13, thir uh, verse 34 says, Like a man going to a far country who left his house, and gave his authority servants into each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to keep watch. Listen, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, the Bible says, don't go weary or become dis discouraged in doing good. For at the proper time you'll reap if you don't give in, if you just don't quit, if you just don't stop. So then, while we as individual believers have the opportunity, let's do good to all people, not only being helpful, but also doing that which promotes their spiritual well-being, especially be a blessing 
to those of the household of faith. Listen, in Proverbs chapter 18, verse number 16, the Bible says a man's gift will make room for him. And Ruth went out and worked and that gift on the inside of her started to make room with Boaz. And it just wasn't happenstance. She got in the right field because she started to trust God and she put her hand to something. Just a couple other takeaways under point number two. We need industry in our life. An idle mind is a devil's workshop. Some people that aren't doing anything become very discouraged and disillusioned because God didn't create you. You realize that there's not really retirement in the Bible. There's just a refire. And as we, as we get to the end of this book, I'll show you that. But we need industry, which means you need habitual diligence in any employment. Habitual diligence, not start and stop. Put your hand to something. Be steady. Don't be sloth or idle. Give it your all. Learn, grow, develop. As Reverend Randy ministered on, on Sunday, man, if you want to be promoted, then become valuable to the organization. Be habitual in your diligence within, in that employment. Don't complain and gripe if you're not doing anything. There's really no traffic jams on the extra mile highway. Number two, be creative. Just don't bring up problems at your work. Bring up solutions. We're made in the image of God and God is a creator. Therefore, we have the ability to create on the inside of us. And meditation is the matrix of creativity. When you meditate upon the word of God, I brought this up last week in Joshua 1.8. When you think about the word of God, there's two promises. When you do what he's saying, number one, you'll be prosperous. Number two, you have good success. Success is actually that, that part of the second part of the equation, the promise where you get the creative ideas, where you get the insight, where you get the 360 degree view. This is what this organization is lacking and what I could bring to the table. There was a story about a guy that went to the Coca-Cola of, uh, uh, CEOs and before the board. And he said, I got two words for you, but it's going to cost you, I think it was like 50 or $70,000. And they said, what is it? He said, bottle it. And how many of you like Coke out of a glass bottle? But the creative ideas, the concepts that God can give to you. The last thing is productivity. We need industry creativity and productivity. That means you need to be fertile and you need to bring forth fruit in the things that God's called you to do. As a husband, as a wife, in your, in your work, even at the ministry, if you're at the parking lot, if you're working as an usher, bring forth fruit. Going on to the third point, the third takeaway from the book of Ruth is provision through redemption. Provision through redemption. Provision through redemption. And I believe in, in the third chapter, this goes from about uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 11, this thought process of provision through redemption. I believe Naomi starts to turn. She heard about bread. She goes back. And how, how encouraging is when somebody goes with you? And Ruth goes with her. But all of a sudden, she's starting to see the favor and the flow of the blessing again. And all of a sudden, her heart turns to her daughter. She says, I seek rest for you, and I want it to go well with you. I seek rest. That means I want you to find a settled place. And I want it to be a place where you could rest and grow. Those that are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. If you're always uprooting a plant, it's never going to grow to its capacity. Matter of fact, it'll probably die. And Naomi wanted Ruth to be in a settled place, and she wanted to be a pleasing place. 
One other point I want to bring up before I get to the main verses in uh, verse 11 of chapter 3. Listen to what Boaz says about Ruth, because God sees way more in you than what you see in yourself. And even in a place where she hasn't manifested the fullness of what's on the inside of her, God, through Boaz, is communicating to her. He said, now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do all you require. And talking about, I'm going to redeem you. Even though she's from a Gentile nation, out of covenant with God from the tribe of Moab, God said, I'm going to actually redeem this. Because God's heart is for all to be saved and none to perish. But he said, you are a virtuous woman. Are you kidding me with raggedy clothes, harvesting crop? He calls her a virtuous woman. Now, that's a statement of faith. And this virtuous woman is the same as in Proverbs 31, when the Bible says that, the, the, that, that Proverbs 31 woman was a virtuous woman. And that, this is what he saw in her. I'm going to give you an acronym called FAME, F-A-E, F-A-M-E when it comes to virtuous, because this is the definition of virtuous. Number one, F means force, force. That means there was momentum with her. She had active power produced by motion. He saw that she was a go-getter. The A stands for ability. He said, you actually have riches and substance and wealth. Isn't that crazy when she really didn't have anything to her name? He's calling by faith that you have substance to your life. The M set means might. It means you're a person of great achievement and you, you, you have application of means. And the D means you're efficient. You're, you have the act of producing. You're fruitful. But the key verse in this third takeaway, when it comes to provision through redemption, is found in Ruth chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. It's, and the, the Bible says, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the, the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from the position of the gate, you are witnesses this day. So in this principle, Boaz redeemed Ruth, who wasn't even in covenant with God, but he redeemed her. He bought her. Listen, we're redeemed, church. Jesus Christ has redeemed us. He's redeemed us from the bondage of the law. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us from the power of the grave. He's redeemed us from the power of sin. He's redeemed us from iniquity. He's redeemed us from destruction. He's redeemed us from evil. He's re redeemed us from vain conversation. Psalms 107 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. What are you saying? Faith has a voice. I'm redeemed. And what, what a great day in Ruth's life. What a great day in Naomi's life when they were bought by Boaz, redeemed by him. Land came back in their possession. Identity came back in their possession. Provision came to them. They went from destitute and famine to plenty. And thank God for plenty. The last point I want to cover from this book and this woman of faith, the last takeaway is legacy impacting 
the next generations. And I believe faith reaches not only your life, but for generations to come. I believe faith not only affects your life, but affects lives to come. Faith not only affects your life, but affects lives to come. Listen to what Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22 says. And just think about from where she was, Naomi, Ruth, to where God brought them. This is called the transcendent glory of God. What the devil meant for bad, God can make work for good. Just don't stop. Keep trusting, keep giving, keep confessing, keep meditating, keep praying, keep coming to church. Just don't stop. And you can see the transcendent glory of God where he takes a mess and he makes your life a message, where he takes a test and he makes it a testimony. Joseph experienced the transcendent glory of God when his brother sold him into slavery. 13 years of his life, 13 years of his life, he had to hold on to a dream. Just as Pastor Marcus said, what is the dream on the inside of you? Because you got to hold on to what God's saying to you. If you're a person of faith, you have to hold on to what God's saying to you because there's going to be a, 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 a period of trials and a period of testing, but you have to hold on to the promises of God. Job held on to the promises of God. He would not curse God, and he had more at the latter end than he did at the beginning. Joseph held on. In Genesis chapter 50, verse number 20, it says, But as for you, referring to his brethren, what you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. The curse cannot stay on an unintended victim. Joseph was in righteousness, so he couldn't stay in a curse. He stayed a blessed man. Wherever he went, God was with him, and he rose to the top. He was loyal. He worked. He saw the redemption of God in his life, and he left a legacy. Ruth and Naomi even they were, they were destitute in Moab, and they didn't see everything at once when they got into Bethlehem. They held on to the promises of God. They saw the provision come through redemption. We see in Ruth, as I was getting ready to read earlier, verse, uh, verses 13 through 22, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. He went unto her. The Lord gave her conception, and she had a son. And the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, which has not left you this day. God has not left you this day without a kinsman, a redeemer, that his name may be famous in Israel. He shall be unto you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, which loves you, is better to you than seven sons which born him. And the women and neighbors gave and a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. The father of David. Can you imagine that a, a Moabite, Ruth, because of her loyalty, her work, experiencing the grace of God, the provision through redemption, actually got into the lineage or the genealogy where she gave birth to Obed, who later through two generations, gave birth to David, who eventually that same genealogy traces all the way to Jesus Christ. So faith affects you now, but faith will reach into generations to come. So my question to you today as we close is this. What is your faith doing to ignite 
impact and influence the next generation? What is your faith doing to ignite, impact, and influence the next generation? There's no reason why you cannot become all that God created you to be. You can be as great as any biblical hero, but there are obstacles you have to overcome just as they overcame. What legacy qualities can we pass on to the next generation? The process of leadership, servant leadership, is not finished until we passed off an example and a role model to the next generation. Even Naomi in her old age. Listen, God's word calls us to make our senior years a time of spiritual maturity and intellectual growth, a time to convert a lifetime of courageous uh, Morality, personal integrity, and character building to a legacy that encourages and inspires the next generation. Don't bury your legacy of faith. Plant it in some young person, some mind, some heart, and let it live on long after you're gone. Every person needs a mentor and somebody to invest in them. So do not let a legacy of faith die. Plant it into the next generation and the generations to come.